Hi, this is Eugene Hernandez, and welcome to the first Film Comment podcast of 2021. We're glad to be back. I'm the Deputy Executive Director of Film at Lincoln Center, Director of the New York Film Festival, and Publisher of Film Comment. Today we're hopeful as Film Comment returns, and as we get ready to reopen Film at Lincoln Center's New York City cinemas. Every single area of our organization has collaborated to make this possible, but I want to highlight a few folks. Specifically, Chris Stevenson, Lisa Thomas, Haley Mednick, Jordan Raup, and our whole marketing and communications team. Liz Gardner and Matt Denda, our partnership and ad sales force, with Blair Hartley and everyone in our philanthropy department. Latrice Jofield and Paul Ramlochan, handling customer service and strategy. And our audio production team, Arin Sanghurai and Kuros Alekband. And finally, our ED, Leslie Kleinberg, and the Film at Lincoln Center officers and board of directors. And now I'll let David Girish and Clinton Crute, the co-deputy editors of Film Comment, take it from here. Thanks. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. And we're the editors of Film Comment. We've been on hiatus now for nearly one year. And it's certainly been an eventful silence. I think we can both agree that one of the things we've missed the most is talking about movies with our colleagues here at Film Comment and with all the incredible critics we've had on the podcast as guests. We couldn't be happier to be back on the air with a discussion of the Berlinale 2021 slate. Like many festivals, the Berlinale is taking a different form this year with a two-part edition. The first part, a virtual industry event, just concluded last week, and a physical edition follows in June. Despite these changes, the lineup was stellar, featuring new work from filmmakers like Hong Sang-soo, Celine Siama, Pietro Marcello, and many exciting films from newer directors. For this necessarily truncated overview of the cinematic treasures on offer this year, we reached out to two of our favorite critics, Erica Balsam, who writes for Art Forum, Cinemascope, and elsewhere, and longtime film comment contributor Ella Bittencourt. Erica, Ella, Clint, and I discussed Breakthrough Georgian Sensation, What Do We See When We Look at the Sky, prize-winning Encounters film, The Girl and the Spider, Radu Judah's Golden Bear-winning Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, Celine Siyama's highly anticipated Petite Mama, and Ryusuke Hamaguchi's whimsical Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, among many other films. We hope you enjoy the conversation and stay tuned for more. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast, or I should say welcome back to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm getting chills saying that. It's been way too long since I've said that particular string of words. Uh, We've been been frozen in a glacier for the past nine months and they're thawing out finally. And we're very pleased to be joined uh, for this emerging from the from the Glacier episode by two wonderful springtime friends. I'm Erica Balsam, uh, joining from London. I'm a reader in the Film Studies Department at King's College London. And we've never had Erica before on the Film Comment podcast, right? So it's we're, true. But so we we're are so busy. so thrilled. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And we have a, a longtime film comment contributor and, you know, uh, another favorite writer of ours. Hi, I'm Ella Bittencourt, and I'm a writer, critic, and occasional curator. And I'm joining in from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome, Ella. Hi. 
Thank you both for joining us from far away places and making time for this. Uh, just very, very excited. And today we're talking about the Berlin International Film Festival. I think we're all emerging from a caffeine fueled week of trying to see as much uh, as we can during this strange edition of the festival, just to give listeners a little bit of a uh, some context, uh, you know, with it's it's been a pandemic edition of the festival, uh, like some other festivals, like the Rotterdam Festival. Berlinale decided to split its um, festival this year into two parts. So we've just emerged from what they've called the industry event, which was a week long virtual screening of uh, the films that was only available to the press industry and the jury. And in June, they have a physical, I think, or possibly hybrid event planned in Berlin where the films will be shown um, to the local public as well. So uh, quite quite odd to experience the Berlin Alley this way, but I think the films were, at least the ones I watched were so strong that I almost forgot that it was a virtual festival at times. You know, the wonder of the movies uh, overwhelmed me enough to, to make me forget the drabness of my home viewing environment. How about you guys? What was it like? I didn't really forget the drabness of my own environment. I mean, I agree with you that the, the selection was so strong, but if anything, it made me miss being at the festival even more because I was imagining what it would have been like to see some of these films, like in the Berlinale Palace, you know, which has this huge, huge screen. Um, so, you know, it was like a very bittersweet kind of experience this week watching these films. God, now I sound like a Pollyanna, but <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but I, I had a bit of a mix of positive, of positivity and kind of doubt because I'm usually so torn physically also in Berlinale. I mean, I remember trying to rush from the palace to, let's say to the installation site, which is out of the way. And just always feeling this being split between a cinemaplex, which felt like my body as a journalist belonged, but also wanting to be at the same time at the arsenal, where I'd really rather be at times. And so I, I think that at least some of the satisfaction that I'm seeing in the various pieces of journalists and critics reporting from all over the world seems to be about that, about having just a little bit tiny more time. You know, the festival time itself feels so brutal. I feel like I'm still catching up and still going through the notes on many of these films and for many of them hoping to return, just knowing that I didn't write about them, being able to give them the time that they deserved. Um, so I think that some of that, a tiny bit of that was alleviated this year for us. Mm. Right. Although there was at least at least one film in Berlinale uh, Forum Expanded where I just kind of paused and I felt like, no, this is clearly a film that you were meant to experience on a larger screen and it's a mix of moving image and still photography and I could just picture it at the installation side and in no way picture it inside of my bedroom or living room where I have my own much, much smaller screen, so. I think it's really true that it's a situation that bears differentially on different kinds of films. And some of the kinds of films that I'm most passionate about are actually the ones that do not fare well um, on a laptop. Whereas, you know, I really enjoyed the Hamaguchi film, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, and it was perfectly wonderful to see it in my living room. And I don't think, you know, it was such a substantial transformation of the experience. I would not be able to say the same thing 
for many of the films in the forum, for instance. I, I, yeah. I, I do agree with that. Um, I have to say that the experience, even though I, you know, the films I watched really, I did find transporting and like redemptive, redemptive in some way, you know, of the, uh, of my viewing conditions. But um, I realized that the festival viewing involves a kind of discipline that allows you to open up to certain kinds of cinema. And I just had to give up. I feel bad saying that, especially as a critic, but there were some films where I had just had to say, it, I'm just not cut out to watch this in my living room. I cannot summon the discipline required from within me for certain kinds of observational or durational films. And that is quite unfortunate. But those films were not made to be seen that way. You know, it's not your failing. It's also that these films, you know, are not meant to be presented that way. And I understand why the festival has to do it for press and industry. Um, but, you know, I think we, we have to try and make some sort of imaginative leap, you know, whereby we watch the film and we know it's not what it should be, but we think about what it probably would be if we saw it properly. Well, I think that then we have to talk about like, what, so what is this film at, like, given, given the circumstances that we're seeing it in, like, does it have, like, are people making films for these circumstances? I think the only ones really that that fall like, that fulfill that criteria are like the series, right? Like the ones that are made kind of for home viewing, like the TV series that they screen. And like I watched part of the Philly DA ser- uh, series, and it was really like I just felt like I was watching TV at home. But then again, yeah, you watch some of these durational films on a laptop in an office, and you're <laughs> at home. Yeah. And it becomes a different film. I mean, it's, it's just a, a totally different, different film. film. And it's a shame, but that's the, that's the case. But we still, I still watched a lot of them because, mm-hmm. you know, and again, you have to project, you have to project yourself into what it would be like watching it in a theater. I think that's a really uh, poetic formulation. You know, uh, if if you don't have, if you can't project the film on a screen, you project yourself into into the theater in your sort mind. Sort of an astral projection. <laughs> but you know, one film I I think that. I feel incapable of pinning my reaction, pinning my response, you know, to that film down because of the the viewing conditions is actually a film everyone's talking about a lot. Uh, The Georgian film, What Do We See When We Look at the Sky by Alexander Kobridze. Ella, I know that you you expressed an interest in talking about this film. So maybe, do you want to tell us what what happens in the film kind of provide an overview? I really appreciate the kind of weaving that he's able to do um, of the images. I mean, I, I recall his first feature to be this film that was I Let the Summer Never Come Again, which won at Fid Marseille. That was essentially him having hundreds of hours of footage of his town on an, it wasn't even an iPhone, it was some kind of a phone camera and then sort of pulling out of it and imposing this kind of fable-like story on top of it. But a lot of it just being um, kind of weaving a a very subtle and and lyrical portrait of a place out of this, these tiny moments of playing with light, which I agree. I mean, you can see in the second film um, ways in which that is maybe over exposed in a way I mean this constant playing with light and with the wind the curtains moving the movement but at the same time he's always 
kind of juxtaposing these different tiny images. And I don't know if it's very Eastern European. I mean, that this kind of voice that that reminded me a lot of Oran Pamuk and My Name is Red. I don't know, this storyteller that has you sold on um, on what's partly an absurd an absurdist story, partly this kind of magical telling of a spell. Right. Uh, Ella, you want to tell us I mean, uh, the, yeah, the, the tell story? Yeah, sure. <laughs> tell you what the story is, right? Yeah. What's the well, plot? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, so we this have podcast is about plots, okay? All right, all right. It. It's all about plot. Well, what do we have in plot? We have, I guess, she's called Lisa, right? A young woman, Lisa and right. Georgi, who bump into each other once. They bump into each other as the second time. They're both extremely timid, but by the second time, it just seems like it's fate. And they're meant for each other. They're Mark, you know, they agree to meet on their first date at an outdoor cafe. Uh, we're in this small town and um, it's fate, except it isn't, right? Because then suddenly there's a spell and Lisa is told, I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a little weed and a rain gutter and it kind of dives into and kind of diverges into this like right. magical realism. Announces that Lisa is, um, that she's what, that she's bewitched or that cursed. she's now cursed. And that uh, by the time she wakes up the next day, she will look like nothing like herself. And uh, Georgi is similarly stripped of his physical appearance. So now they're looking like completely two different people. On top of it, they lose their talents. So therefore they lose their professions. And soon enough, Lisa is working at an ice cream parlor and Georgi, I think is also selling cookies in the street or something that's He's like hustling like uh he's doing like some scam where you like dangle from a, a pull-up bar for up to two minutes so i think draw you to whatever it is that he might be ultimately he got hired to do something um i recall and um and yet slowly but surely they made their trajectory um towards each other and are accidentally but not hired to be to act as lovers in this film, which is actually a documentary about real lovers. They're not actually lovers, but they are. Therefore, they're in this documentary and then are invited to a screening where, behold. Well, you now you're giving it a spoiler part. alert. Okay, spoiler alert. The plot, plot That's lovers it. and. That's it. Let, yeah, let's just leave it. The cinema proves revelatory. The, yeah. the gaze of the camera uh, exposes something. Um, and case. we should mention that there is a big soccer arc, which I, again, like I'm, I'm just not a soccer fan. Uh, and I, I know a lot of- the term is football. Yes, actually, a football fan. Um, but that is a big arc in the film and sort of how the, uh, the sense of anticipation that the two lovers- are experiencing in terms of you know being diverted from their paths towards each other and then finding you know themselves that time is sort of filled by the collective anticipation the town's collective anticipation of you know watching the world cup um and that's a big and that's there's a magical realist realist twist also in the way the football world cup is woven into the film there are some really glorious scenes of dogs and people and children watching and playing football and sort of trying to embody the glory of, you know, what they uh, see on screen. We never actually see the football matches in the film though. So it's all, all like sort of related through the experience of watching. Um, Georgi is a professional or a semi-professional football player, I think, right at the beginning before he loses Until his talent. Until he loses his talent. Right. 
I mean, the football motif for me, the most crucial moment was in the middle of the film when there's a kind of break between the film's two parts and you have this really amazing extended shot of a football kind of like uh, flowing through this muddy river mm -hmm. and the voiceover, this kind of almost fairy tale voiceover that's throughout the film comes on and says, you know, um, if someone looked back on today from the future, they would wonder why all of these people are so disinterested in all of the horrible things that are going on around them, mm -hmm. you know? And um, then I thought, yeah. And like, isn't that kind of true of this film? You know, because this is a film that actually, I mean, it's a beautiful film of faces and feet and objects and kind of the enchantment of all of the small details of the world. But I mean, to say it's like a whimsical film is to put it too mildly. You know, okay. and this is what's so amazing and gorgeous about it. But to me, it was also the thing that kind of was like hovering over the film for me as a question mark was like, you know, what are the limits of this kind of romanticism, especially one that ends, as we've sort of hinted at, with a proclamation of the power of the movies, which of course I believe in too. But I kind of wondered, like, are all the critics who like are falling all over this film, are they like enjoying the fact that their medium of choice is being uh, kind of exalted in the closing moments? I don't know. And and what is the truth that that cinema is being used to reveal? I mean, in this film, to me, the film is really like the subject is, it, as you said, it's like whimsical, it's putting it too lightly. It's this romance and this kind of folktale, this magical realist folktale that avo avoids, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to be hard on the, on the film either, but I feel like it avoids placing these characters in any kind of social context other than this folksiness, like a general kind of like the, the cute dogs that want to, that also want to watch the world cup, the children who reenact like 1994 world cup games um, in a, in that really long sequence where the entire, where like the, an entire European pop song is played over these, this, like all these kids playing a game of soccer and in, uh, in slow motion. But uh, yeah, I just was left a little bit, Cold, I think, because maybe I'm just a cynic and my heart is made of stone. Like he keeps gesturing towards these truths and these like the brutal realities that are that are maybe happening outside the frame of. I think it's reading it and, and this kind of it's not giving us enough of, you know, social profiling of our or the social kind of sure. of this character. I mean, I think that that's just that's one important component of cinema, but I would kind of defend and um a, a filmmaker who who wants to kind of surrender a bit of love to this little provincial town that by all means is very far from kind of the spotlight and the western concerns etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean the sure. idea that that you know your own tiny provinciality could be your universe i don't i don't necessarily know that um I mean, whatever we make of this, I think it's very clear that it's a problem that the film is absolutely conscious of. And this is why I mentioned that scene mm -hmm. with the, the football, you know, in the middle. Um, it strikes me that this is exactly the problem that the film is taking on, you know, and you can like its solution or not like its solution. But my sense is that this is what the film is about. Oh, so, yeah, question. I mean, I so think, what, what um, is its what is its solution? 
when you frame it that way. And um, I think you know the 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 film is maybe trying to carve out two and a half hours of uh, you know redirecting the gaze toward the tiny mysteries of the everyday and to find within them some sense of joy and enchantment and beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, again, we can say, and I did, and I kind of think it's true that it's maybe too romanticized, too whimsical. Um, but I think that the film is in a way a kind of like weird polemic, you know, for the value of, of doing that and for the value that cinema has in being a space where that can happen. I think, um, so like I said, I, I struggled with the durational aspect of the film. I mean, not that I always struggle with, you know, films like that while watching them at home. It was, I think, specific to this film and it lingered though for a while after I watched it, I returned to many moments and scenes. I mean, there's a kind of wonder to the film that really does feel inescapable. You know, it, it kind of plants itself in under your skin uh, in, a, in a positive way. And I, I admired it for that. I think what ultimately did temper my appreciation of it is that those mysteries that it's trying to uncover, you know, in everyday and provincial life, ultimately, like, it, they felt quite simple to me. I think the conclusions it arrived at were simple and very humanist, even though it's trying to capture the cultural um, and sort of spatial and urban specificity of this place. These are maybe intentionally very trite, you know, kind of truisms about whether it's about cinema, whether it's about love, whether it's about small town life. And there's a kind of dislocation in the construction of the film that doesn't feel matched by the conceptual infrast you know, kind of infrastructure, the scaffolding of the film is to me quite one, I wouldn't say one note, it, it's not one note, it's definitely a very multi sort of vocal film, but it, it's very simple. I, I don't know, but you know, it's very essential, it's very simple. And the construction is so complex that I think at the end, I had a sense of the film demanded a lot from, from me and it also gave me a lot sensorially, uh, experientially, but I'm not sure what that was for. I mean, was that yeah. for the power of cinema? You know, like you said, Erica, but I, I, I think that one other film that does something of what the Georgian film is trying to do better for me is a girl and the spider mm -hmm. uh by sylvan and ramon zercher i'm i don't know if i'm saying the name correctly and i think that that's also in a that's also a film about maybe not the enchantment of everyday life but the longings and uh sort of all that is bubbles beneath the surface of everyday interactions I completely loved it. I mean, I, I just, uh, it was the best film that I've seen. And I should admit that I haven't seen, you know, everything, but it was the best film that I saw. And I think I'll just say a little bit about it. And then I, I want to hear you guys, um, your, your thoughts. But I don't think I've seen many other films recently that really capture with precision what it's like to be a young adult um, and a young person with, you know, and capture with precision the imprecision of like, everything you do as a young person and the just the confusions of longing and desire and 
you know, self-perception, all of that just colliding. Because it's a very simple film. It's about a girl who's moving into an apartment and she's helped by her roommates and they kind of run into the neighbors and they're the handyman and there's the mother is helping them. They're, they're just like characters colliding in space. And- But really, in, on a, just we should say like more clearly kind of just what, you know, it's the it's this girl and her- best friend her they're kind of like college age post-college and one of them's moving out from their shared apartment and that's kind of this like really like basic skeletal structure right and it's very um it's both i think very gritty or not not gritty but it's um granular i would say and like it what it's delineating, you know, all these little things about moving and packing and uh, sort of little resentments about being separated and all of that. And also very abstract, like the dialogue really veers into, you know, poetic and, and oblique formulations. So it just becomes very abstract and there's uh, sort of sexual intrigues and, and all of that. And I don't know, I just, the film just, it filled me with so much feeling. I just haven't felt like I was trembling with feeling, you know, after <laughs> watching it. And I, I don't know. I just felt completely absorbed into all that, what I felt like were these feelings colliding, like I said, in space. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just awoke all those feelings in me. Anyway, I, I'm before I just go on a complete rave, I, I do want to hear other, other opinions on it. But Devika, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I thought, I mean, again, it struck me as having this kind of, uh, on one hand, this kind of having this fable touch because they're all telling these little stories. And then there's a, you know, there's there's the storyteller that comes at the end. There's someone that, who's someone who left a piano in the apartment and used to live on them uh, um, in that apartment, in the old apartment, but now is on a cruise and she's kind of dreaming possibly of this whole place. Etc. But um, but it did strike me at one point that even though the film leaves out very deliberately any mention of kind of social media and dating apps, that in a way it is a film that's profoundly informed by that. By by on one hand this very universal feeling of all the possibilities being open in front of you, but on the other hand this very I think real contingency of what it's like to be dating and to be thrown into this world in which you know like you wake up you have your breakfast or and by that evening you decide with whom you're going to hook up that night and maybe that's a thing maybe it's not a thing maybe tomorrow someone else will pop up I mean it had that feeling of this constant I don't know magnetic yeah there's that moment where there's that brief moment where it's like a scene and they don't even return to this character, but the, the woman in the pharmacy, who's like looking up at them and their stocking balcony, shelves, yeah. stocking shelves. And they look down and they say, Oh, there she is. She's stocking shelves. Like, Oh, she does it. They have the, and it's the, obviously this ongoing thing in their lives, but it's just this, they just kind of like gesture towards this, uh, what could potentially be another story a storyline. And then right. it just goes away. And and they talk about how they only ever see her doing that and can't imagine her having a life outside of that. But then the main right, character right. says that she actually saw her in a, in a different, cafe, right? yeah. And she, she suddenly imagined this whole other life. And uh, Ella, I had not thought about what you said about the, the film evoking that experience of living in this like uh, age of social media that has this 
I, you know, the churn of the churn of life feels very, you know, fast and open-ended and that, that scene really seems to get at what you're saying. Um, and, and different. I mean, I'm not even saying that the filmmakers were, that this was one of their intents. It just it was something that came up for me. And also because it has such a different, I think, attitude towards this romantic storytelling that unlike the Koburitsa film, which is very much invested in constructing this romantic tale in in the girl and the spider, I mean, the minute it's constructed, it's it's immediately deconstructed. And then Mara goes on and kind mm-hmm. of sends to us this little story of happy forever after, but she's doing it absolutely in the spirit of destroying in a way the notion that that's, that's, that that's within the realm of possibility. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the, the Koparitsa film sort of is constructed in such a way that it mirrors its subject matter. You know, it's like meandering and expansive and beautiful. Whereas in this case, I think the real kind of like weirdness and success of this film is that actually the film is very precise, ordered, meticulous, contained, sure of every single tiny move it makes. But it's dealing with a subject that is in many ways the opposite. You know, like these interactions that are tonally very unclear, things are constantly spilling and breaking, you know, as you say, like no one really knows how the night is going to end, who they're going to wind up in bed with. Um, And I think that kind of tension really generates the energy of this film. And in that way, it's very similar to their previous film, um, The Strange Little Cat. And I find it to be a completely kind of thrilling, thrilling cinema um, to watch this like kind of order and chaos, kind of fighting it out at the level of form and content. And and it's funny. Like there's a, yeah, it also generates a lot of jokes. Like yeah, and visually super striking. I mean, a really beautiful color palette, working with primary colors in really really striking ways. I mean, it's um, it's a formally very sophisticated work. So even though right. we're talking about it in terms of like youth and feelings. And like, you know, passion, erotic desire, you know, this is also like a super crisp, yeah. very almost um, mathematical film in a way. It's no coincidence, I think, that it begins by showing us a diagram right. of the apartment that the girl is moving yeah. into. That's and over true. the course of the film, the diagram is drawn upon with markers and all these different colors. So it's like almost little like kids it, coming in. Exactly. In a single image, it emblematizes for me what the gesture of the whole film is. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really, I think, uh, a beautiful observation. And I think it's that each moment is thrumming with drama. You know, I mean, each moment has its own little dramas and moment to moment, they just threaten to split off. Like every moment threatens to split off in a drama of its own. Um, but it is a tightrope walk i mean every each of those kind of multiplicities are like so precisely rendered and that balance is maintained so perfectly from one moment to the next um yeah and anyone who has lived with roommates understands that kind of passive aggressiveness that intimacy and amazing familiarity but also that kind of contempt that just like accumulates over time you know it's like there's something so recognizable at least to me about that no offense to former roommates I've had I love you all (laughs) well um 
You know, the other reason I think the film stuck with me so much is I hate to say this about films nowadays, you know, kind of talk about how the pandemic makes me like or dislike films more. But I do think that the the films um, play with serendipity, you know, and the power of chance encounters, the power of collisions uh, with strangers or with, you know, people, you know, and intimacies, all of that just powerfully affected me. I think that's why I was like filled with feeling these are not experiences or intrigues that you I'm you know getting to have in in the in the current situation. And so it kind of obliquely felt like a very powerful pandemic film. But which brings me to the actual, I think only pandemic film I saw in the festival. Yeah. Which well, this was is a transition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which was bad luck banging or loony porn, which is actually, I think it's the only film I saw in which like the pandemic is happening in the diegetic world of the film and is a thematic consideration or Erica, it looks like you have. I thought you were going to say this is the only film that had two titles and both of them were not very good or <laughs> just bad titles. Well, it can win that award, but it cannot win for only pandemic film um, because Sheng Zhu's film um, oh, a course. river runs, turns, erases, replaces. Uh, playing in the Forum was a beautiful observational portrait of um, her hometown, Wuhan. And it begins with the end of the pandemic. And then most of the film um, is images of the city prior to the pandemic. But then we have four letters throughout um, that are letters written uh, to people who have died. Um, it's very, very moving. Not a great one for a laptop, yeah. but. That mm. was my experience. I had a very hard time on the laptop with that one, but it, but I can't wait to see it in a different, in a different context. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think it's very different from <laughs> the Radu Judah film. I meant more so that, uh, you know, a film that actually dramatizes or is like lifting uh, or basing its narrative plots around the pandemic, which, um, haven't I think there's been films in other festivals that are about lockdown you know about the experience of quarantine or lockdown but this 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 felt different uh Clint I know you were a fan of bad yeah, banging was, or loony porn so. I think maybe I was just very uh very surprised that it that I liked it as much as I did because I have to say that I watched the trailer and I was really pretty uh wary I basically I thought it was going to be like a European naked gun, 33 and a third. And it just looked like a really bad movie, frankly. But uh, I think it it's not. It's actually pretty good. That's, that's, that's my take. No, but I think what, what I, that there's this whole first section where it's, so the, the story is, the movie's about this teacher who um, films herself having sex or, she and her husband film each other having sex and it's pretty graphic. And the film opens with this like really graphic scene, the sex scene. And then it cuts to the teacher kind of walking through the city. Um, and it's, it's what's, I'm not sure what city it is. It's in Romania. It's a Romanian I think film. It's in Bucharest. Is it Bucharest? Okay. So she's walking through Bucharest and she's talking on the phone and she's, and she it becomes clear that this that this video has got has been posted online and her job is at risk and so she's kind of trying to 
to manage this and figure out how, what to do about it. She's calling her husband who's like, didn't telling him how did this video get out? Like take it down. It's never really clear how the video got out and never becomes, uh, it never is totally explained, but, um, this whole first section of the movie is just her traversing Bucharest and, um, what's what struck me about it and i thought was really interesting was that the camera just keeps like wandering away from her it, it just kind of it'll pan with her across the street she'll cross the street she'll be on the phone she'll hang up she'll keep she'll walk off 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 camera and then the camera will like drift off to the side back the same direction she came from and like pause on a billboard or something or like a a, a storefront a gym Oh, and it's also, this all takes place during the pandemic. Everybody's wearing masks. People, she's going into stores. There's old ladies who take down their masks to talk to her up close. You know, it's like all the, all the usual rigmarole, the horrors. Yeah. The daily horrors of living in the pandemic. Um, Yeah. And it's like this strange portrait of this time where the film seems to want to like break free of the story that it's telling. (laughs) And then there's this, there's a second part that is a dictionary. I think it's framed as, right? I can't remember what the term that they use is. I was wondering because I thought at a moment it might be like an abecedaire and part of it did seem to mm-hmm. be maybe in alphabetical order, but it's not like one entry for every letter. So it's a yeah. gesture toward that, but it's not rigorously A to Z. Right. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty loose. It's all kind of centering around like contemporary po- the political situation in and and history like and then the final section is a sort of trial of the teacher as she arrives at this like parent teacher conference uh meeting which is happening out in the in a uh, like the square of her school or like the the courtyard of her school with a big statue of a goddess like looming behind her and um all these teachers just like excoriating her and like yelling of oh, the parents yeah sorry the, the parents um and it really is just like a trial and she's just sort of being screamed at. Um, and then there's, yeah. And then it ends. <laughs> yeah. And that court of public opinion uh, scene is, is very literal, I, you know, and it's kind of, it's very provocative in. Um, I mean, that's where it, that's where it becomes close. That's where it strays closest towards the European naked gun in my opinion, <laughs> like there's caricature, these really broad characters of like a right, like right wingers, people who refuse to wear masks, like a guy strides in and says, I will not be oppressed by a dick, by the dictatorship that tells me to wear a mask. And then, uh, the headmistress of the school says, we all lived under communism. Like, please give us a break. Like we know what an actual dictatorship is. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also in relation to the the Koborice film, because I mean, also both of these films kind of propose like different theories of cinema, I think, like we talked about the sort of wonder and beauty, but in this film, there's actually, I think it's in the second passage, the sort of essayistic passage where um, he says that cinema is like uh, Athena's shield and it allows mm-hmm. us to sort of like see the Medusa without being frozen by her gaze and that's yeah. like a, a, a quotation from Siegfried Krakauer I mean it's, Krakauer says you know this kind of like line for line in um theory of film and that idea that like cinema can provide us a way of looking at the horrors of the world 
you know, through an indirect gaze is, yeah, like the opposite of the Koboritse. But, you know, for me, that really provided a way into thinking about what this film was trying to show us and why it shows it the way it does with this kind of like weird, irreverent humor and like a taste for the absurd and for sometimes like the disjunctive and for caricature. And, and, I think and you see for that. the literal too. I mean, there's so much of the film that's so literal that took me by surprise, including the central montage section. It's like playing with those poles of uh, literalness and uh, sort of euphemism, you know, which, which seems so central to what it's saying about cinema. That So, you know, the so-called directness of cinema, it's immediacy of the image. That is always a euphemism or always a sort of, you know, prevarication. And, you know, you're always looking at things indirectly, even though it seems... Uh, the sort of immediate and I thought that was really interesting like even in the court of public opinion scene uh, I mean there's some dialogue which are like literally you know second wave feminism debates just being Mm -hmm. you know in the most schematic fashion even the the montage scene some of them are so obvious I mean there's it's like blowjob and you see a literal scene of a blowjob from some like random porn video and then there are other moments that are so and, you know, there, there's a, a lot of references to the treatment of gypsy uh, communities and Roma communities, and they are also very direct. Uh, you know, there's like a cleaner in the background while this discussion is going on and people are just saying things while, uh, you know, she's she's right there. Um, and people are hypocritical in very obvious ways, but there's always a sense that people are not saying the things they want to say. I mean, even when they're blunt and brash, there is like this unsaid, unspoken sort of social narrative. I, I, I That seems to come out through the absurd moments that seems to come out through this like completely ridiculous narrative of the sex tape. Um, and even using- in choice of mask, like the masks, like all the different characters in the court of public opinion have different kinds of masks. Right. And the masks are like, you know, these very obvious sort of gags that right. relate to whatever kind of, you know, um, the military figure. Guy. Yes, the military. One of them says, I can't breathe and uh, a George Floyd reference, which exactly. was, yeah. But, and I think it's one of the like most uh, kind of prudish people with the George Floyd one. Right. Um, yeah. It's the- priest i guess who has the oh yes it's the there's priest oh god yeah and then there's like the pedantic academic guy who starts reading from his phone starts reading it's theory from his so phone interesting how um he seems to be having like a kind of a combative love hate affair with and i don't want to call it american culture but just kind of I guess, Western culture. I mean, I kept thinking of what he's doing with these buildings and I don't think it's a very neat juxtaposition and maybe not not easy to to articulate, but he seems to be juxtaposing at times the the graphicness of the pornography in this video, um, in this homemade video that ends up on Pornhub versus the quote unquote pornography and the graphic aspect of it in the surroundings of the city. Yeah, that's really out. that's really interesting. And that really that really stuck with me. I guess as someone who was born in Warsaw under communism and ended up in New York at sixteen, that graphic aspect mm. of 
capitalism where desire is a constant merchandise and you kind of trade it. I'm, I'm simplifying and, and just terribly simplifying, but in a way, what I'm trying to get at is that there's a sense where you traded a certain type of singular propaganda and, and uh, brainwashing for a very different, much more subtle, but forever present type of constant capitalist propaganda and brainwashing that's all around you. And as well. Yeah, and uh, it's also the, the, the porno that they made is, is also a video of two people who like love each other and seem to have respect for each other and seem to be like, and, and there's a moment in the porno when like the grandfather knocks on the door and asks him and reminds her to pick up his prescription. I mean, it's just like a portrait of like intimacy. The other thing that, that you're, when you're saying that it reminded me of was this recurring motif of giant trucks blocking the sidewalk and this idea of like the city and like the collective experience of the people being kind of just like shut down and clogged by this kind of pornographic like individualism I guess or this advertising and I mean it functions also not like in a very simple way this because right. it seems that the way he's using this little video that they made and then then ended up being made public it seems that when he was accepting the award I mean the director um, mentioned uh, he mentioned something like the the soft the German soft porn lightening up the dark years, you know, the last years of, of our teenagehood in, in Romania under communism. So clearly there's a certain kind of nostalgia towards that pornographic production that, and a part of it, how it exists in the film is this kind of the filmmaker's nostalgic view of it versus a little bit also of how it actually functions today with the whole sitcom scenario right. and this kind of public flagellation and so on and so on. There's a lot to be said about all the films that we've talked about so far, but I think we have to move on. I think we should talk about a film that I know is kind of controversial in this group, uh, Petite Maman, the Celine Siama movie. Devika, I know you really enjoyed this. So do you want to I feel like I'm provide setting- an overview? Yeah, so I feel like I'm like setting myself up to be eviscerated, but no. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> I'm kidding, but yeah, I I really did like it. I was uh, I, I I was taken by surprise because I like a portrait of a lady in fire. I don't love it because there's a certain schematic tendency in Siama's work that I think hold holds back a fullness of a feeling. And Petit Mama is very different. Uh, it also has a quite a clearly defined concept. You know, there's a sort of log line aspect to it. Um, It's about a little girl whose grandmother dies and her mother, uh, she and her mother go on a trip to the grandmother's house where her mother grew up as a child. It's a little house in the woods to clean it out and, you know, pack up her things. Um, And her father also, also joins them. And then One morning, her mother, who is clearly, you know, affected by her own mother's passing and has a lot of uh, maybe difficult memories um, come up while they're in this house, she just leaves one morning. The film doesn't really explain why she leaves, uh, doesn't explain where she's gone. And this little girl, she's, um, you know, uh, while she's playing in the woods, the day her mother leaves, she encounters another little girl who's the same age as her and has the same name as her mother, Marion. 
And what we eventually discover is that this little girl is actually her mother. And she somehow, it, the movie doesn't make this clear what, what's happening, but somehow the past and present are coexisting. Somehow she's getting to meet her mother and her grandmother, you know, as they were maybe 30 years ago or, or something like that. Um, and so that's the premise, this like magical realist uh, sort of uncanny premise. But once again, that we venture into the world of magical realism, it's been yeah. really, it's like a real and also the like theme. Teen, teenagers, teenagers in love and magical realism were big this year. That were, yeah. That's my and the uncanny too, to... you know, seeing doubles and seeing, yeah. uh, and there's a, the Hamaguchi film does that really well too. And maybe we can touch upon that. But I think what, what I really loved about Petit Mama is because it, it focuses on children, which kind of takes Siyama back to the realm of, you know, childhood that she explored in films like Tomboy. And I think Water Louise as well, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, the interaction between the two young actors who I think are really delightful and lovely and the characters is that children don't respond to things like grief or even magic in the way that adults do or expect them to do because their idea of the world is not quite as set as, you know, they're not as surprised by the things that you think they'd be surprised by or shocked by the things you think they'd be shocked by. And so there's that element of surprise and unpredictability that makes this film just blossom for me. And there are still moments that are maybe a little too obviously pitched like you know there's a line about sadness that a lot of people like that I found a, a, a bit too like it put into words what the film was I think doing a great job of conveying without words which is you know the mother's depression and how the two kids talk about it and whether the daughter and how even a young eight-year-old child can make can process you know their parents unhappiness and how they they, they might place it into their view of the world which is you know, the world is just them and their parents, like right? a child and her parents and the world's causality is just within that relationship. I think it spells it out in that moment, but otherwise the way the two characters talk to each other and what they uncover about each other is there's nothing quite revelatory. Um, and I think there's a, I don't know, it's just like this fantasy, right? It's the fantasy of every young girl. It's the fantasy of every mother is, you know, what if, is, is to meet each other at a point that feels, uh, to, to converge, you know, to have that fantasy of what was my mom like when, when she was this age or for a mother to think about what her daughter, what she was like and how, how their paths might converge. It's just realizing that fantasy. And I think that felt very powerful and, and moving to me in a very simple and direct way as, as a daughter and, you know, as, as someone who has a similar uh, relationship with her mother. Um, it also yeah. the da it gives the daughter an opportunity to do something for her mother to help her through this. The, the mother is going to get surgery, I think, and the daughter it becomes the support for the mother as a friend. Yeah, and there's one line where she's talking to her father and she says, "You know, what was what 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 were the things you were scared of when you were a child, or you know, how did my mom's operation go?" And he says, "Well, she's told you about it," and she she says. Well, you, you never tell me the little things, right? Like right. parents, you tell me the big things, but children don't know how their parents actually lived and those little things of what you were scared of and how you reacted to things, uh, how you had breakfast or, um, yeah. And I, I, I was really touched by that. Um, I can be a dissenting voice maybe. 
Um, in a way, I actually agree with so much of what you said, because for me, the obviousness of the film, uh, the lack of trust that it places in its audience uh, were really the big problems. Like there is a sense it's extremely schematic. And I think this is already in um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, this sense like things need to be told multiple times, hammered over the head a little bit to make sure we get it. And you want to just say, yeah, we get it, you know? Um, it is touching, but for me, it didn't really kind of um, transcend the premise in any way, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think uh, uh, one um, thing that we haven't talked about yet that I thought was crucial to the film and a real weak point was um, the house, the architecture of the house. And the house itself is very, very schematic. And this is clearly purposeful, right? Um, but for me, it felt like this weird cardboard stage set. And I just thought like the, the, the return to this house is a supposedly the thing that galvanizes this temporal confusion of past and present. It's supposed to be a place so steeped in memory, you know, that linear time gets messed Dissolve. up. And yet I felt that the actual mise-en-scene of that house didn't do anything to bring us into that sense of a real richness of an inhabited place, you know, that would be full of those things that would trigger emotion and memory. Um, it just felt, yeah, a little bit like a stage set. And I'm not sure if that was meant to evoke a kind of sense of like, memory as something that happens in broad outlines, you know, but for me, I felt like it was the wrong choice. I mean, I think that uh, that's, that's a really good point that I maybe hadn't thought about because it didn't bother me, you know, and I think that's because I, I kind of liked that the film withholds what really sets off this, you know, portal or this temporal distortion. So I didn't quite read it as this home full of memories conjuring uh, this other reality, you know, I, it's, it fe felt to me like it didn't, it wasn't quite as simple as the workings of memory or the workings of, you know, associations that have invested themselves in objects or, or things like that. I thought that it really felt more like science fiction and that she just stumbles into a portal. I, I liked that. I like that kind of mysteriousness did you didn't she did a q and a uh, uh i think during during berlinale and i and that i uh, heard part of and she said that uh one of her big inspirations was big the penny marshall movie which i think uh knowing that kind of and also i think she mentioned um back to the future so mm. at, and so you, you this kind of broad pop sci-fi kids like kids movie sci-fi and just like trying to capture like a kid's perspective on the world while also you know appealing to the broadest possible audience but i think uh erica's point about the house is interesting because um it's a contrast with the space the delineation of space in the in the lady and the spider um and I think like the way that, that, that the space becomes like more about the people living in it and the memories that they have and the emotions that, they, that their interactions conjure up. I think you also said something about it, it never really going beyond its premise. And uh, I thought this was very moving, but I also thought it, it, it sort of stalled out like, and seemed like a short story that could have been developed 
and could have been longer maybe I don't know it's that's, quite a short film I mean maybe yeah. that's something it's worth mentioning it's what 70 minutes I think it's 70 minutes long yeah yeah I mean and it doesn't feel short when you're watching it necessarily <laughs> I'm not trying to be shady I mean I think the film is fine you know right. it's like totally good I'm sure many people will see it and like really like it you know if you like her work you'll probably like this um it's it doesn't not go like by a, like yeah. But it's, but it, no, it doesn't go by that quickly. Hmm. Ella, did you, did you like it? I liked it. I mean, I, uh, it's interesting what you said about childhood and how um, it really worked for you because it seemed to have a, a child's perspective. I have to say that I missed a little bit of that uncertainty and vulnerability of Tomboy. That's a film for me that... Hmm kind of makes me quiver second to second with just completely puts me on the edge of how lived it is in the uncertainty of gender and identity and friendship and love and family and I can't say that that petite maman feels that way to me so in that sense the the children actually felt a little bit more for me like stand-ins for mm -hmm. childhood and and how children can be all embracing and that itself is kind of a balm. Um, it's kind of like smoothed to out. Certain, like, yeah, to a certain information yeah. that maybe we're feeling in this moment. And I understood this film as almost being Shyama's rushing out to make a film that, that can deliver yeah. something that's all embracing. And um, and I appreciate that. But I, I felt like the, the, the moments that interest me interested me the most the idea of this house and how this house is kind of marked with illness and how there's something in that relationship of the mother with the grandmother who just passed away, who is almost too painful to explore and how it's precisely that moment that we were turning to. And, and it's not about mourning per se. It's almost like letting go of a certain self of yourself as your sense of yourself, as you're about to have this surgery that when then will alter how you relate to right. yourself but mm. it was about that and that's a very abstract idea that maybe only I connect to in the film but at the same time it makes sense because it feels relatively unexplored well we're we're running out of time I mean it's it's so difficult to talk about all these films in in one hour or however long the sense of being but uh, maybe let's do something like a Berlinale roulette and uh, let's each each of us talk about a film that we haven't talked about so far, or maybe that's even a little underseen uh, and that we want to shout, shout out for good or bad reasons. Uh, it's totally up to you. Uh, Clint, did you want to start us off? Uh, sure. I want to talk about uh, Per Lucio, the uh, Pietro Marcello documentary about Lucio Dalla, uh, which is, who was a, a Italian singer songwriter, like kind of a, uh, yeah, somebody who uh, might be poorly described as the Bob Dylan of Italy, although, you know, every country has like 17 people who are called that and none of them correspond in any way, shape or form to Bob Dylan. Um, but he was a uh, kind of progressive rock folk singer songwriter uh, whose peak was in the 70s and 60s. And uh, this film is really like a, a a passion project, it seems, for Marcello. Like he seems to be like 
a, a huge fan of Lucio Dalla's work. And it also strike, strikes me as another possible um, pandemic project and that it's mainly comprised of archival footage, um, much like in Martin Eden, there were these passages where you would see where there was archival footage used to describe um, the past and and to show like kind of like workers working on the docks and stuff. And so here he he sets whole songs, whole Lucio Dallo songs to these scenes of like race cars of uh, archival footage of like races happening in Italy and people screaming and yelling and in addition to like actual concert footage. Um, so you don't actually, what's interesting about the movie is that you don't learn much about Lucio Dalla's life or even like his career, but you kind of get a sense of who he was as an artist and who he was maybe as a person. So I, I thought it was kind of a, a minor movie. I thought it was interesting to have somebody like Marcello working in this mode of kind of a, uh, American masters kind of, uh, mm documentary and i think that there it's kind of an interesting idea to have people who have really um unique grasps of the tools of cinema take on these kind of standard formulas for making documentary yeah i mean i found the use of archive footage super interesting and actually really kind of like blew apart the standard formula that you think of when you right. you know i mean you're right in a way it is like working in that mode, but you know, if all those documentaries that use archive footage use them as well as this one, we would be living in a different world. You know, I think there's really a sense that he he understands this sort of sense that like cinema is the memory of a century, the way that Lucio Dalla is sort of like the voice of a people who's like right. speaking to the popular classes about, you know, like very, um, kind of like, like day -day society day-to-day -day issues that are not about his own life and that really pertain to you know the Italian everyman at a particular moment of tremendous change I think um I found it really interesting uh and I don't you know, didn't know a lot or really anything about Dalla prior to this and after I saw it I was talking to an Italian friend of mine who said well but how did they deal with his sexuality and I said, what? Like, well, not at all, in fact. Yeah. Um, and I guess that this is a huge question, you know, in the legacy of, of Lucio Dalla, the way that he spoke about his own sexuality. He was gay, but, you know, said, you know, I don't feel like a homosexual. And after his death, this was a big part of the conversation. And so it's interesting to me that this was not in the film. Yeah. And I think, as you say, we could say it's because many personal details are not there. On the other hand, you know, the film is so intent on seeing him as a sort of like um, representative of the popular classes as an everyman, you know? But and also this... like, but also as somebody who's like constantly pushing against being pigeonholed in any way. Like, yeah, but this would have like kind of really added an interesting sort of complication, you know, sure, to sure. that question of who can who represents the people. I mean, I will say um, that like I felt like there was something missing from this portrait, and I think that you're kind of describing maybe what that is, like some sort of inner his inner life. This singer's this subject's inner life was really not like part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, there we we should say, you know, there there are extensive interviews with his longtime manager and also with his friend, which are 
I think quite touching in a way yeah. there's like really a sense of of informality to them that I that I really liked I mean I don't want to sound like I'm like talking up this movie so much because it's very true it's sort of like you know a minor work for Marcello but I think it's you know super worth checking out um Erica is there a movie that you uh want to highlight that we didn't get a chance to talk about um, yeah, I would say uh, the movie that I am most looking forward to seeing again when it's possible to see it in a cinema is Saint Anne by Rain Vermette. Um, and this is a Canadian film um, that is um, part of the first round of commissions from the Cousin Collective, which is like a very interesting initiative to support work by um, Indigenous filmmakers. Um, the film for me had some of the same themes as Diema, so it involves a return to a family home, uh, relationships across multiple generations of women, and um, it's very impressionistic. It has a really, really profound sense of place. Um, a woman basically returns home to um, the town where she grew up her um, brother and his partner have been raising her child for the past four years and they didn't know where she was or what she was doing. And then one day she shows up. Um, and so it's really about, you know, belonging, unbelonging, what constitutes home, what constitutes family. Um, but it's very impressionistic. It was playing in the forum. And I think, you know, true to that, it is very much, you know, a film with a strong kind of artistic vision shot on 16 millimeter over a, a quite a long time, I think. Um, and the director herself appears in it and many of her family members do as well. Um, it's very mysterious. Um, there are moments when it kind of has this like hallucinatory dreamlike intensity and I would love to see it in a cinema. Ella, your, what's your yeah. pick? Okay, um, I want to mention the film by Avi Mograbi that was in the forum, and that's um, the title of it is a little long. Uh, it's the first 54 years and abbreviated manual for military occupation. Um, you know, I did see a little bit of that, but that was one one of the films that I, I sort of didn't feel fully capable of taking on. So I'm curious to hear your impression. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that um, this film is, is aware of, of just kind of the incapability and, and the difficulty of, of, of taking it on. But I was very interested because it, it made me think back to the film, The Viewing Booth by Ranan Alexandrovich. Mm. That's a film where Ranan this young girl Maya come into the studio I mean there's a whole process of how he chooses her but she's a young university student um, but anyway in the viewing room Maya is looking at these different images of violence against Palestinians and she has this partic very particular task of identifying if she can tell which um, are made by this um, human rights organization, and which I think are kind of the official videos made by the Israeli army. And it's a very particular, but also an astounding exercise. And I thought it was interesting because I was in a, I did a Q&A with Ron and, and it seemed like there was some, there were some complexities about his intervention in the film when he actually decides to speak with Maya and he's speaking to her not as a teacher, I mean, genuinely from his position, but as someone who's an ex 
who as a male in Israel would have done military service and would have actually been at least on one of the operations that she's watching in a video and questioning whether it's real and it's a particular rating of a Palestinian home at night where the children are terribly frightened and so on and so on. And um, Avi Mogravi's film is very different. Um, what it's doing is he calls it a manual for the occupation. So he's actually seen on camera and kind of in this semi-cynical voice drawing us in and saying, if you wanted to occupy a territory, let me give you a script. Let me give you a manual for how it would have, you know, how you go about this. And then he kind of breaks it down on, you know, land grabbing and dividing the population. And at the same time, he's walking us through the history. So what your reactions might be to the first intifada and to the second, et cetera, et cetera. But there are, he's using the testimonies of soldiers, of ex-soldiers, since all males are required, all healthy males are required to um, be in the military. So he's using, through this particular organization, which is called Breaking the Silence, and the footage that they got, gathered, he's using some of that footage and the testimonies of the ex-soldiers of the particulars of the, of the violence as he's, going, as he's going kind of through these chapters. And I mean, I'm interested in how, in a way, he's returning us to this viewing booth. I mean, it's in a very simple way, reaffirming the status of this footage and the way that it's very open-ended and questioned in, in the viewing booth, but the position of Ronan as a soldier and as a director and the position then of, of, this man, of these men who belong to an entire generation of men through whom this violence has partly been institutionalized um, is interesting to me. And, and I guess I'm still, I'm rewatching the film, so I can't pretend that I have actually processed it. I haven't written about it, um, but I would very much like to write about it. And I'm intrigued by, by Avi Mograbi as kind of, as our guide. I mean, I have known his filmmaking um, I'm thinking of a film like Once I Enter the Garden, I have known his cinema to be a very lyrical cinema. I mean, he has certainly returned to many sides that used to belong to the, uh, to the Palestinians' houses that had ceased to be Palestinian and exploring kind of relationships and stories around it. But it has always been a very different kind of voice as I have known it and, um, and the kind of I wouldn't say it's confrontational what's happening here, but the way he's using this, this um, the kind of performative cynicism of this voice and yet how it's meant to draw us in and to kind of call us in and, and in a way address, I think, the response of the viewer of, I can't watch this, this is devastating. I, you know, I, I feel like I know this, but there's a certain helplessness, I think it comes in viewing this film and that, that Mograbi is, is engaging, um, that's intriguing to me. It sounds like... You know, things that we, one of the things that we value at festivals is that, that there will be films, and I think Forum is one of the programs in which we look forward to it, that there will be films that are coming in and are continuing conversations. And I feel like the viewing booth, because of the time when it actually premiered, 
uh, it didn't get to travel much, you know, I mean, it didn't, it participated in a few festivals, but then everything was on lockdown. So that's a, that's a conversation that just feels truncated. And hopefully when the Mugrabi film is out, um, we'll be able to, to pick it up again. Yeah. One thing just to add maybe about the forum, it's interesting because this is the second Berlinale where there's been the new competition of encounters, uh, which is meant to be a little more daring. And I think I heard many people saying that this would like, you know, potentially cause problems for the forum because encounters would sort of pick off the best films that would have been in the forum and put them in this new competitive section. Um, if this year is anything to go by, I think you know th there are very, very strong films in the forum. In some cases, films that I liked much more than films that I was seeing in Encounters. So you know, the forum is alive and well in the age of Encounters, I guess. Well, I think I'll just close out actually with a competition pick, which makes me feel bad because it's not like underseen or, you know, uh, championing a little film in there. But I did want to say, you know, we referenced the Hamaguchi film a few times and I just want to say a few words about it. Um, I really enjoyed it a lot. You know, it wasn't necessarily, you know, the best film I saw at the festival. Uh, I guess, again, the films that I felt drawn to, and I feel almost weak for saying this, like it, I, I, I just fell prey to films that seem to capture what I miss about my in my current life, which is again, just the serendipitousness of urban life, of social life. And that's really a film about chance encounters, speaking of encounters, uh, you know, the Hamaguchi film. And it's a film that it's divided into three chapters, like actually several films, I would say, in this year's festival. Um, and the, there are three distinct anecdotes. Each of them has a credit sequence right after. So it's really, you know, three little films joined together. And each of them is about a little case of mistaken identity or, you know, it's, it's all kind of almost soapy, the premise of each, uh, which I guess fits into, you know, his previous work too. It's like these very contemplative and clever twists on sort of soapy, uh, gamey premises. So the first one is about a woman uh, and her friend. Um, they're, they're talking in a car and the woman is talking about a man that she met at some kind of business meeting and immediately fell in love with. And then we discover that you know, the friend she's talking to has a connection with that man and has a past. And so, you know, it, it's kind of them exploring that triangle. Uh, and the second story, which was actually my favorite one, uh, is about a woman who tries to basically is, is, has a lover who has this, you know, vendetta against a professor at their university. And she tries to seduce him by reading a passage, a kind of uh, an erotic passage from one of his recent novels. And the bulk of the film is her reading and sort of talking about that and trying to seduce him. And his uh, unpredictable response, a very kind of literary response to what is uh, this kind of, I wouldn't say cheap, but you know, like this very vulgar attempt at just sort of shaming him and his stoic and literary and very interesting response to that. So I, I enjoyed that one a lot. And then the third uh, story is about these two women who meet each other on the street, mistake each other for someone they know. And it takes them a while to figure out that they're not the people they think they are, but they keep up that pretense and sort of uh, air out like these old 
feelings and demons by it's sort of vertigo-esque I I would say you know narrative of of what of what the uncanny can unlock in you uh, when you willingly give in to its pretense so they're, they're very simple stories, I think. They have that kind of the uh, essence of a short story, you know, with the twist ending and with the sort of neat little bow at the end. But they capture, I think, yeah, they just capture something of uh, an unpredictability of, of life and of social interaction that I, I really crave right now where everything feels you know, when, when my interactions are so limited, when my space, the spaces that I occupy and, and encounter are so limited. And especially in this film, there's a lot, the final story, for instance, you know, I was thinking how these two characters run into each other at a train station and think they're someone else. Could that happen in, at a time when we're wearing masks? You know, something about recognition and misrecognition, these stories that are about recognition and misrecognition, in open urban spaces. They just seem impossible when you can't see each other's faces and you can't actually, you know, the, the field for recognition has been like shrunk so much. So that just that just made me think of all the stories that, you know, we're kind of missing out on. Uh, and so it's, it's quite a lovely film. I don't know if any of you uh, saw it or liked it, but yeah, I thought it was wonderful. And it's actually a film that is, um, I think, apparently very simple, but in fact, quite complex. Um, I mean, for instance, across the three stories, role playing and performance happens in all three of them. But the meanings that are attached to it are radically different in each, in each case. So, you know, it might be therapeutic in one instance, um, deceptive in another um, it might in a, in the third, in the first one, it's sort of about evading conflict. Um, I don't know. I thought that it was like a kind of perfectly crafted, super entertaining film that when you really dig into it begins to open up in a lot of very interesting ways. Well, I think uh, we'll end there. We've, we've talked for quite a bit and covered a lot of ground. I know there's a lot more ground to cover, but uh, with this two-part Berlinale and, you know, there's, there's going to be many more opportunities to talk about these films and some of the other films. So we'll definitely return to them. But thank you so much, Ella and Erica. This was just wonderful. And I feel like after a week of just inhaling these films you know this was uh, actually very cathartic and like intellectually productive for me to start to think about all the images that are uh that I've kind of stored up in my head and didn't have that crucial festival experience of watching and then walking out of the theater and talking with people at parties about what you know or or just uh, interacting with people and and being able to unpack what I was watching so this provided a really good alternative for me <laughs> Me too. Thank yep, you so same much. Same here. Thank you both so much for joining. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.